Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the executive pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit mysouthland.com. I want to start a new uh, series uh, till till uh, till middle August when I leave on uh, holidays. But we're going to do a series character study on David. And uh, I like in in summer times. Uh, last year we did summer in the Psalms, but often. In, in uh, summertime, I like to do a character study. We've done uh, Joseph and, and Samson and Moses and various characters over the years. And I want to take on uh, David. And he is far and away the, the biggest, I mean, aside from Jesus and God. Like, obviously, uh, we're not going to compare David to, to Jesus to God, uh, okay? Like, the whole Bible is about Jesus and God, okay? But putting Jesus aside, uh, David is far and away the biggest a human character in the Bible. Uh, far and away, uh, three books of the Bible, okay, are devoted to telling the story of David's life. You got 1 Samuel, you got 2 Samuel. By the way, I think a lot of times people get a little confused. There's a whole bunch of books in the Old Testament that talk about kings, right? You got six books, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, and all six of those books tell the stories of the kings of Israel and Judah. And I think sometimes people get confused which are about which. It feels like it's all a big jumble. Well, just to kind of, to kind of help you understand, First and Second Samuel are the story of David, okay? And then First and Second Kings are the story of the rest of the kings, not David. Okay, is that pretty simple? And then First and Second Chronicles is just a repeat of Samuel and Kings, just from a different writer, from a different perspective. So First Chronicles, again, gives you the story of David. So First and Second Samuel, the Samuel books are all David, the king's books are about the rest of the kings, and in Chronicles, the first Chronicles is also about David, and then second Chronicles is the rest of the, the, Judah, the Judah kings, all right? So, but anyway, that's a lot about one man, all right? Just to give you a little bit of perspective, okay? In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have 89 chapters about Jesus at his first coming. Uh, in those three books in the Old Testament, we have 63 chapters about uh, David's life. So he's a huge character in Scripture, not to mention he wrote uh, about 76 of the 150 Psalms are written by him. So he's a huge character. And of course, uh, he's also one of the most popular characters in the Bible because I mean, we just love him because he's got the highs. He's got some crazy highs and neat stuff that inspires us. But it, that's not why he's our favorite, really. Really, the reason he's most of our favorite is because he's got a lot of crazy lows. And he makes us feel good about ourselves that, hey, if this could be a man after God's own heart, maybe we can be men and women after God's own heart as well because he had some big failures, right? And uh, uh, one more thing I want to say just before we pray and get into this. Um, it's interesting to me to speak of the importance of David in the Bible uh, and his importance even to the storyline of Jesus itself. It's very fascinating to me that in the New Testament, Jesus, who's the center of it all, I mean, he is the word of God. He is God, the creator of the universe. He's the center of everything here. And David and the rest of us are nothing compared to him. But, um, but that Jesus himself is called 17 times. He's got a title in the New Testament. 17 times he's called the son of David. And that's fascinating to me. He's not called the son of Abraham. I mean, Jesus was the son of Abraham. He's, he was the son of Mary. He was the son of, uh, of a lot of people, if you go through his family line. But he takes on the title, son of, of David. What, can you imagine, uh, you know, God, the creator of the universe, if he took on the title of your name, son of, you know, Chris, or son of, you know, whoever, John or Joe or whatever, son of David. That is, is crazy. And in fact, when Jesus signs off on the Bible, okay, at the very end of the Bible, the last chapter of the Bible, uh, Jesus signs off, okay? 
Now, I know we don't do this as much anymore. We used to, I mean, this is in my lifetime even. Uh, when I was a kid, I remember writing la- letters to my grandparents, handwritten. And I, I know we don't do that anymore. In fact, a lot of people don't even email anymore. It's all this uh, texting, which is really ruining the English language. But anyway, that's a whole other story. Um, and I don't think in text you usually sign off. But in, even in an email, you sign off with your name. It's interesting to me, at the end of the Bible, Jesus signs off from the end of the Bible. And it's interesting to me how he signs off. The end of the Bible, he says this, uh, verse 16, in it, uh, Revelation 22, 16. I've got it up there. Um, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. And I mean, again, you just see the importance of David in the storyline of the Bible. At the very end of the Bible, when Jesus signs off, he signs off as the root and descendant of David. Now, again, uh, we're not going to glorify David in this series. We're going to glorify Jesus. And only Jesus could pull this off. He's the root of David. In other words, he's the creator of everything. David came from him. I mean, Jesus, he goes back. He has no beginning. He's been for all of eternity. Um, but only he could pull off being the root of David, being the, the creator of David. And then also he took on human flesh and gets born from David to be the descendant of David. Only Jesus can, pa- can pull that off. But it's amazing to me that, again, here we see David at the very end of the Bible as Jesus signs off. He says, I'm the root and the descendant of David. So that's fascinating to me. And so we're going to look at his story. Now, um, the story of David starts halfway into 1 Samuel. For exactly halfway, the very middle chapter, 1 Samuel 16, is where the story of David starts. And I'm going to pray in just a moment. We're going to, we're going to get into the story. But um, before we get into David, because I have the whole summer to talk about David, I can start wherever I want. I'm going to start just before David, uh, the, in the first part of this message, and then we'll get to David in the second half. Uh, the reason being because the prophet Samuel, when he was writing the book of 1 Samuel, uh, he, one of the ways he wants to, to, to show us what David is like is he does a contrast throughout the book between David and Saul, okay? Saul was the king, was the first king of Israel, and he was, he also obviously, and David was the second, so he was the, the king before uh, David. And, and we can actually learn a lot in, in the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, the prophet Samuel, the way he sets it up is he, we're going to learn a lot about David just by seeing him in contrast with Saul. And Samuel wants us to see that. So we're going to actually start in 1 Samuel 8, and we're going to look at how Saul became king, and then we're going to see uh, some contrast with how David became king, right? But bow your heads with me, close your eyes. Uh, we'll pray, and then we'll get into this. Lord Jesus, we love you. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you this morning. Thank you for your grace in our lives. Uh, we come here this morning, many of us, uh, condemnation and fear and anxiety and all kinds of things that plague us as human beings. We put on a big smile, but underneath, many of us come here carrying uh, big burdens, Lord Jesus, I pray that your grace would would wash us and set us free here this morning. I pray that as we glorify you through the story of David, Jesus, I pray that we would be encouraged and that we would fall more in love with you and that you would give us victory in our lives. In your name we pray, amen. All right, 1 Samuel uh, chapter 8. So we're, we're starting the story of David with the story of Saul just to get a bit of context and to draw out this contrast. And 1 Samuel 8 starts with Israel at a spiritual low point, and they're demanding a king. God says, uh, no, no, I don't want to give you a king just now. And Israel says, we're demanding. We, you must give us a king. We want a king now. And so we pick up the story here in 1 Samuel uh, 8, verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, that's Samuel the prophet. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go up before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. 
And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them uh, king. Um, now, I want to just stop and clear up a misconception because uh, if we don't get this right, we're not going to draw the right uh, lessons out of it. A lot of Christians, when we read this story in 1 Samuel, we just think that God was against the idea of Israel ever having a king. Uh, we, we've read that if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you've probably read this story or heard this story a number of times. And so it's just ingrained in us that it was very sinful for Israel to ask for a king, that Israel should never have asked for a king. But actually, their sin was not in asking for a king. God was not against the idea of Israel having a king. And I want to show you that if we go back 400 years earlier, almost 400 years before uh, Samuel and Saul, uh, God spoke to Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. I'm just going to show you this, Deuteronomy 17, because we have to see there's a subtlety here that we often wash over and then we miss what's really happening. In Deuteronomy 17, God said this to Moses, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you. Okay, I want you to notice that. Whom the Lord your God will choose one from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. So a lot of people don't go back to Deuteronomy and take notice of this passage written almost four centuries before Samuel. We just read 1 Samuel 8 and we go, it was wicked for them to ask for a king. God never wanted them to have a king. Well, actually in Deuteronomy, he said, uh, someday when, as your nation matures, Moses, uh, you're, they're going to ask for a king and that's a good thing. I'm going to give them a king. They, it's okay for them to have a king. That actually makes sense for ruling a nation in that, in, in, in that time period. I'm going to give you a king. So the question then is, well, how can then, and, and by the way, in the rest of Deuteronomy 17, then God gives Moses instructions. This is the kind of king I want you to have. This is, this is the kind of thing, this is how I want him to behave. These are kind of the guidelines I want him to follow. So having a king was not a bad thing. So why then in 1 Samuel 8, they asked for a king and, and it's actually sinful. And I could show you more if we read the rest of 1 Samuel 8. Uh, God actually says that in asking for a king, they were rejecting him. Well, how can he say that? But in Deuteronomy 17, it's okay for them to have a king. Okay, and there's a couple things going on here that we have to take notice of. So why was it a sin in 1 Samuel 8 for them to ask for a king? There's a couple, there's probably more, there's obviously always complexities to a situation, but in this passage I believe there's two reasons we can draw out why it was a sin for them to ask for a king in 1 Samuel 8. And the first reason is because it wasn't God's timing. It wasn't God's timing. See, I believe all along that God had wanted to give them a king. Well, he did. We see that in Deuteronomy 17. I believe all along he had wanted to give them King David. Um, the problem was David, when Saul becomes king, you have to understand, a lot of people don't understand time gaps in the Bible. Saul is considerably older than David. When Saul is made king, David's not even born yet, okay? So I believe all along, I mean, we see it in Deuteronomy 17, God wanted to give Israel a king. He wanted to give them the right king, and he was planning all along to give them David. Now Israel comes in 1 Samuel 8, and they say, we want a king now. And God's like, the right king isn't born yet, Okay? I want to give you a good one. The right king's not born yet. And they're like, no, 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 no. We want a king now. And God said, they're rejecting my leadership. They're rejecting my leadership. Now, there's a whole bunch we could say just about this whole point here because, again, it's not that they wanted something bad. If we look at this as they wanted something bad, then we don't draw the right uh, lessons for our own lives because it's like, well, I don't want anything bad right now. But how often is it that we want actually even good things in our lives? Like, God, when are you going to answer this prayer request? When are you going to change this situation? What, I've, been, I've been taking this risk in doing X, ministry or business or whatever it is, and, or we even have a promise for God, and it's like, I want it now. Do you know that one of the big things in the Bible is that even a good thing, if you want it out of God's timing, will become a very painful, bad thing in your life? I mean, that's just a theme right throughout Scripture. 
I mean, well, a, a very famous example, obviously very famous, would be uh, Abraham and Sarah, right? God comes to Abraham and Sarah. He says to Abraham, uh, I'm going to, you know, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And Abraham says, I don't have a son. God says, I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you descendants like the, like the sands of the shore. And that's, so that's a good thing. Abraham wanted that promise. It's amazing. A year goes by, two years, three years. Finally, 12 or 13 years goes by. And Abraham and Sarah are going, okay, what happened to that promise, right? Like maybe we're, we need to do something to speed it up. Now, did Abraham and Sarah want a bad thing in wanting a son? No, God had promised them a son. Just like God had told Moses, I'm going to give you a king someday, Israel. It's not that they wanted a bad thing, but in wanting a good thing before God's timing, they get this bad idea. Obviously, you know, Sarah says, why don't you have my servant girl, Hagar? And of course, Abraham says yes, which is a very stupid thing to do. Husbands never say yes to something like that. And, uh, and it, so then they have Ishmael. Well, here we are 4,000 years later. Ishmael still hates Isaac today. Isn't it true? Isn't that what most of our news is made up in the Middle East? Not because Abraham and Sarah wanted something bad, but because Abraham and Sarah wanted something good before God's time. We're going to rush God's timing. Same thing in 1 Samuel 8. God says, I've got the right king for you. And Israel says, I want it now. I want it now. And as a result of them rushing God's timing, they're actually going to cause themselves 40 years of pain and grief that they needn't have had. They're going to cause themselves 40 years of pain and grief that they needn't have had. I wonder how often in our lives... We just don't know how to trust God to just wait. Amen. That's right. To just wait. You're waiting on some big change. You feel God said, I'm going to do this in your family. I'm going to do this in your marriage. I'm going to do this in your business. I'm going to do this in your ministry. I'm going to do this in your body. Whatever it is. And we just feel like, I can't wait anymore. He's, he's obviously not keeping his promise. We want to rush him. When you rush God, you're going to rush yourself into trouble. Amen. So the second question is, well, why, why didn't they trust him? Why couldn't they just have waited in peace and just said, okay, God, we trust you. In your time, you give us the right king. Well, I think there's a couple of motivations we see in this passage that show us why they were unable to wait and trust. 1 Samuel 8, 19 to 20, or if we go to verse 20, there it says, no, but there shall be a king over us, okay? And uh, if you could just put that up there, Ken. There it is. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations. Motive number one why they didn't want to wait is because they wanted to be like everybody else. Now, when we first hear that, a lot of us adults don't think we have a problem with this. We think this is a junior high problem, that when kids go to school, they all want to be alike. Or like when I come to church, I want to be like the worship leader. Um, <laughs> we think it's a junior high problem. The kids have this, but we don't have it because we all have our own individual. You know what? The fact of the matter is, yes, we all like the idea of thinking we're all unique, and, and there is, a, and there is a, 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 you know, an extent to which we all, certainly we, are all, uh, we all are unique to an extent. But the fact of the matter is that it's one of our co the core motivations of the human heart is I want to be like everyone else. There's just a pull in us. Everybody else spends their money like that. I want to spend my money like that. Everybody else lives at a certain standard of living. I want to live at that standard of living. Everybody else... That, you know, and it works on the negative side too. Nobody else has to get up early to spend time with God. They just get up right before work and go to work. Why do I have to get up an hour early to sacrifice to, to spend time with God? Nobody else sacrifices money on, you know, God's kingdom. They all spend it on themselves. I want to do it that way. Now, of course, this is for better or for worse. It's the way God's wired us that there's this pull. And for, for good, if we get around people who are passionate about Jesus and they get tremendous joy out of following him and loving him and seeking him, you get around people like that, they're going to pull you along because we're just naturally pulled that way as human beings. So not all of this pull is bad. And, if, and of course, some of this pull even helps us to be appropriate, okay? 
Like part of the pull of, of wanting to be like everybody else is, it helps us be appropriate. Like I didn't come to church today dressed as a Bushman from Africa or something. That would have been weird and it would have been inappropriate, okay? Depending on how some of those Bushmen uh, dress, okay? But um, it would have been inappropriate. So there's an extent to which wanting to be like everybody else pulls us to be appropriate in our speech and in our dress and that sort of thing. But then there's a whole other extent to which this drive to fit in, where we, we cease to even, and it's at a subconscious, it's an invisible pull. It's not consciously we don't think, I want to be like everybody else. It's that everybody else lives a certain way, and I've got to live in that. And suddenly wants become needs, and, and things that we, we shouldn't be involved in suddenly become desires we have. And, uh, and God says, so it's, there's that invisible pull, and again, not all of it's bad, but that invisible pull is there. And God says that is not an appropriate motivation to control your life or make big decisions. By the way, if I may just say this, that invisible pull is more powerful than we realize. It's one of the reasons I really believe that we all need a daily or a very regular time in God's word to reset our minds. Because you get out of this book for too long... And what will happen is you don't realize that pull is there. You're getting pulled. It's like gravity. This, it's everybody around you, and your brain is just wired to mirror some of that stuff that's going on, and you just get sucked over. It's a daily time in this where you reset your mind, and you reset your mind to the plumb line of God's Word and God's Spirit, which I think is really, uh, really important. But interestingly enough here, God says it's not an appropriate motivation to control your life or to make big decisions, such as rushing his timing on something. And so Israel, they wanted a good thing. Having a king was a fine thing, but they said, we want it now. Look, everybody else has one. It's working great for them. We don't want to be left out, right? We don't want to be left out. We don't want to be the only ones that are worried. I mean, they're talking to some of these people, and they're going, wow, look at how well they're structured, and they have someone to lead them in a battle. It just makes sense. Give it to us now. And God says, not an appropriate motivation just because everybody else has it and just because it's a really good idea. And even if it's a good thing overall, it's not my time. So to rush God's timing just because you want to be like everybody else, God says no. There's a second thing, though, if we go to the end of the passage, that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Okay? So what they wanted was this. I mean, here they are, a little tiny nation surrounded by much bigger nations and more powerful nations and more established nations. And they said, we just want a king who's going to be strong in battle, who's going to be wise, who can raise up an army, who, 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 you know, who's got strategy, and who can you know, protect us. So essentially, this is a, they just have a desire for security. They want to feel protected. They want to feel defended. It just makes sense. Now, is that a bad desire? Okay, absolutely not. It is not a bad desire to want to feel protected, to want to be safe, to want to do wise uh, things like that. So why is God upset with this? And I'll tell you why. It's because they, were, they were wanted to put their trust in a king rather than in God to, to, to protect them. Amen. It's not that it's bad to want to be protected. It's not that it's bad to want to be safe. What was bad was they didn't trust God to protect them. They said, we're going to put our trust in a king. We need a king to do it because you won't do it for us. Now, you might, you, we might not think this is that big of a deal, but actually to God, there is a, quite a big theme in Scripture is that God actually loves to be our protector. Did you know that? It's actually, there are elements of your relationship with God that can't be opened up until you let him protect you and defend you. Like it's part of who he is. In fact, sometimes he'll let bullies into the backyard of your life just because he wants you to call on him so he can lick them for you. 
It's true. He wants to defend you. I could show you many, many passages. I'll just show you one. Isaiah 31. I just want to show you this because this is a bigger deal than we think because we live in a society, we are probably one of the most protected cultures in all of history. We are a very, very protected culture. We have built into our culture many systems to protect us. And I just want to say up front here so that nobody misunderstands me, those protection systems are not bad. And we should make use of them. We should be wise, absolutely. But I want to show you something. But we are a very protected culture. We have insurance for absolutely everything. And again, I'm not against insurance. Don't anybody go to this message and go to the coffee shops and say that I told you to cancel your insurance. I did not tell you that. I have insurance. Okay, I do. But I want to make a point here about something that's really important. And I'm going to show you in Isaiah 31 as well. But we've got insurance for everything. We've got police. We've got all kinds of help. We've got every financial things and assistance in this. We have all kinds of things set in as protections, and those things are wise and good. And whoever thought of those things, very smart people, some very good things, and done a lot of good for society and for people, okay? But here's the thing. God says, when you trust in things instead of me, that actually is an offense to him, just like it was with Israel. It wasn't an offense to him that they wanted a king. He was okay with them getting a king. What he was not okay with is his people. These are supposed to be his special possession on the earth, like we Christians are today. This is his special possession on the earth. And he said, we don't trust you to protect us among all these nations. We need a king to protect us. He said, that offends me. That offends me. Isaiah 31, I want you to look at this. I want you to see God's heart to protect us. Look at this. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because there are many. Now again, we read this and there's no conviction because none of us has horses or chariots or few of us have horses and none of us have chariots, okay? Um, so we all read this and feel good about ourselves. Well, I don't trust in horses and I don't trust in chariots. So you can put a whole bunch of other things in here though, what I just talked about. You can put a whole bunch of things in here that we go to for protection instead of God. Not that we shouldn't have, not that we should make wise use of some of these things, but that we go to instead of God. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and horsemen because they are strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult with the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words. But will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. And I want you to notice this, verse 3, okay? The Egyptians are man and not God. In fact, all of our protections are just human-made protections. They're not God. And their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. You know what I really believe? And I, by the way, this is not the only passage. I could show you passage after passage. Okay? This is, a, this is a theme throughout the Old Testament. God says, I want to be your protector. I want you to take refuge in me. Blessed is man who takes refuge in the Lord and nothing else. But yeah, I, I really believe as we get closer and closer to Jesus' return, as we're in the last days, I really believe one of God's primary purposes, one of Jesus' primary purposes, why the, the Scripture talks so much about the last days, both the New Testament and the Old Testament, and it talks about the, last, the final days being a very tumultuous, terrible time. I really believe one of God's primary purposes in those last days being a, a tumultuous, uh, you know, terrible time is that Jesus is going to shake everything that can be shaken in our lives until the church has only him to protect her. Amen. I just really believe that. I believe that's actually one of his main purposes is he is going to systematically in the coming days until he comes back, I think he's going to systematically strip away everything that we cling to instead of him. Until finally in the end, all we have is him and it's just him and only him who will protect us and then he'll say, ha, this is so fun, and he's going to come back, and he's going to protect us. Okay? I really believe that. It's his heart. 
And so again, it's not that it's wrong to do those other things, but why do we do those other things and do we do them instead of him? Have we put our trust in financial planning and insurance and all these things? Have we put our trust there? We should do those things, yes, but here's how we should do those things. Out of taking refuge in him, realizing that these are weak things that can be stripped away at any moment and they're only human, no matter how powerful they look, even the Egyptians, they look powerful in, back in Isaiah's time, and as Isaiah said, they're just human and they'll break recognizing that these are just things we do for wisdom's sake, but ultimately our help is all here. And we don't do these things out of fear, and we do, but rather we know that God is our protector, and we go to him and we listen to him. And that makes God very happy, and he will fill you with his spirit when you get close to him and let him protect you. He loves to defend us. But anyway, the interesting thing is now, as a result of them not trusting his timing, and as a result of them rushing him because they, they don't trust him to take care of them, and they want to be like everybody else, here's a scary thing. God gives them exactly what they want. You know, if you set your heart for something really hard, that's, a, that, that's something that should give us a little bit of pause. If you set your heart really hard against God and something, say, I want this and I want it now, the scary thing isn't that he won't give you what you want. The scary thing is that he might give you what you want. And that's what he does with the Israelites. He had a bigger, better plan in place. David wasn't born yet. He was going to give him a good king. But they said, we don't want to wait. We want now. And God says, fine. And he's going to give them exactly what they want. 8.22, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. And now this next part is very interesting. The very next verse, remember, there's, there's no chapter divisions uh, in the original. Okay? So, we, you know, chapter 8 goes to chapter 9. We think it's a separate thing. But not, chapter 9, there's no chapter break. So the very next verse is the very next thing that Samuel writes. And here's what it says in chapter 9, verse 1. Um, and it's very interesting now. He's, God's going to give them exactly the kind of leader they want. This is what's so fascinating to me. If, if they had put their prayer request at a prayer summit on a piece of paper, he says, I'm going to give you each and everything you want. Okay? So 9 verse 1, let's look at this. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of uh, Abiel, son of Zeror, son of uh, Bekorath, son of uh, Aphiah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. Okay? Now, the word their wealth is chayil. It's a, the Hebrew word chayil. And what it means is it's much more than wealth. It's, it's power, and it's a mighty in battle, okay? So first thing, remember, the Israelites said, we want a leader to protect us, to take us into battle. God says, okay, fine. You insist. I'm going to give you exactly what you want. So Saul's dad is a man of power. This is, this is, this is exactly the kind of leader that we would pick. This is exactly the kind of leader the Israelites would pick. Let's find a man of wealth and power, okay, who is mighty in battle, courageous and successful in battle, okay? That's, who Saul, that's Saul's family. That's who he comes from. Verse 2, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So the Israelites say, we want a, uh, uh, we want a leader right now who's going to protect us. And God gives them the biggest, most handsome man in all the land. His dad is a powerful man, a wealth, mighty in battle. God says, here's exactly what you want, okay? And this is one of the contrasts that Samuel wants to set up for us in the book of Samuel between Saul and David, okay? When God picked Saul, he gave the Israelites what they wanted. When God picked David, he gave the Israelites what he wanted. Now, here's my question to you in your life. What would you rather have for yourself? What God wants for you or what you want for you? 
Now, that's not an invitation to apathy. Sometimes, that question, sometimes people use that as an excuse not to pray. I just, why would I bother praying? I just want God to do, I want God to just give me what he wants to give me. Okay, that's just pathetic, okay? Um, that's just a sad, that's just a way to kill your prayer life. That's not what this is about, okay? We should go to God, we should give him our desires, we should be passionate, but not in a stubborn, rebellious way. We go to God and we give him our desires, but when he says no or when he says wait, rather than getting upset and bitter and worrying and full of fear, we thank him because he has the best timing. The reason he hasn't given it to you yet, the reason he hasn't answered that prayer, you say, why hasn't he done it yet? I've been praying for this, you know, for this marriage thing, for this family thing, for this depression thing, whatever it is. I've been praying for this one year, two year, five year, 10 year, and nothing's changed. And God says, do you know if you rush my timing, it's not going to be good for you. And they said, we must have a king now. So finally God says, fine. And he gives them exactly, exactly answer their prayer. Because they go, oh, wow, God is so good. He answered our prayer. And it's going to cause them 40 years of pain. 40 years of pain and sorrow getting what they wanted. So what would you rather have? What God wants for you or what you want for you? You know, there's a way for us to bring our desires to God that's full of thanksgiving and trust, isn't it? We go to him passionately and we say, this is what I need. This is what I want. And Lord, I thank you that you hear my prayers. And I'm glad to wait. Lord, I want, I just want, but Lord, and we just pray out of trust and thanksgiving. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Let's go to the contrast now with David. With Saul, God gives him exactly the leader they wanted. What does he, get, what is, what does he do when he picks David? Well, if we go to 1 Samuel 16, and the thing you have to understand is there's a big time gap between 1 Samuel 8 and 1 Samuel 16. And we often miss this when we're reading scripture because scripture is written totally different than how our culture does things. In our culture, when you write a biography, you want to put all, the, the goal is for a lot of these biographers, it seems to put as many facts as you can into a book. So if you get a biography about Winston Churchill or Nelson Mandela or some of these guys, those books are always this thick, okay? And then you get the Bible and, you know, they'll skim through decades and centuries in one line. Okay, they'll, they'll skim through years and years in one line. Between 1 Samuel 8, when, when Saul becomes king, David's not even born yet, or most likely not even born yet. Uh, and then we go to 1 Samuel 16. We don't know exactly how long it is, but we're talking probably 10 to 20 years. Okay, so Saul, by the time we get to 1 Samuel 16, uh, Saul has been king for a long time, and he's had a number of chances to prove that he's disobedient. God says, I've rejected him. Okay, and so in 1 Samuel 16, we pick up the story. The Lord said to Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, verse 1, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king from his sons. And so Samuel travels over to Bethlehem to meet with Jesse. We pick up the story in verse 5. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came... He that Samuel looked on Eliab, so Jesse comes, so God says to Samuel, okay, I'm, I'm, we're anointing a new king. This is the one who should have been king from the beginning, but we had to wait because he wasn't born yet, and Israel rushed it. So he goes to Jesse, and Jesse brings out his sons, and they, and, they, and they line them up. And the first one is the oldest, that's Eliab. So when they came, he that Samuel looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him, right? So uh, first of all, Middle Eastern culture, the oldest, that was, uh, that was a special place of honor. And, uh, and, and then Eliab must have been, he would have been a big guy, an athletic guy. He could probably dunk a basketball, lift heavy weights very fast. Uh, Samuel, he's handsome. Samuel just takes one look at him and says, surely. I mean, this is a man of God. He's not a worldly man. He takes one look at him and says, this is the guy. Like, obviously, it's him. And then we get one of the most profound passages in Scripture and certainly one of the central passages for this whole story in 1 Samuel. In verse 7, this is what God says to Samuel. But the Lord said to Samuel, 
Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And this is the heart of the book of 1 Samuel. This is the heart of this contrast that Samuel wants to draw for us between Saul and David. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, we read this story now today, and many of us think we're totally different. Like, all oh, those backwards people, Middle East culture, they, they, they judged everything by looks. We're not like that now. When we, when, we, when we vote ourselves a leader, we look at the issues. Right? Isn't that true? There's more. Um, you can Google this. I, I looked at some studies this week. I looked at a few studies, and you can look this up. They've actually done a bunch of studies on this. Now, the studies were all done in the States, but, but before, I, and I know us Canadians love to be smug, like we have it together and the Americans don't. That is the most ridiculous thing I ever saw. Amen. Okay? There is no drop in IQ when you go south of the border, I'll tell you that for sure. Okay? And uh, the only reason they've done the studies there is just because they've done the studies there, and, and, uh, and so for whatever reasons, right? There's just more people, and they think of more cool studies. But anyway... Um, they did, they did a whole bunch of studies. Again, you can Google these because they, they've, they've done lots of them. But they've done a whole bunch of studies in different U.S. elections, and they've found that the more competent-looking candidate in an, in an election, different ones, not just presidential, but Congress and Senate and those sorts of things, that the more competent-looking candidate wins the election if there's a clear difference. Like sometimes they might look very similarly competent, but if there's a clear difference, one looks more competent than the other. 69 to 72% of elections are, are are won by the more competent-looking one, regardless of the issues, okay? And in presidential elections, like in a lot of presidential elections, of course, people vote, you know, based on party, but then you've got this, so you've got certain people, it doesn't matter to them anything, they're just going to vote their party, but you've got this huge group of people in the middle who can swing either way. They find that the president that looks more competent, looks more trustworthy, uh, their, their movements, the way, they, the way they hold themselves, they just look more presidential, uh, is worth about a 13% voter swing, just on looks. Is that not crazy? And, and it's not a conscious thing. People don't look and say, I'm voting for the better looking guy. That's not what they do. They say, I'm voting based on the issues. But really, their ideas about the issues were influenced by the looks of the candidate. Yes. See, because man looks on the outward appearance. Nothing has changed in the last 3,000 years. We haven't actually gotten smarter in the last 3,000 years. Amen. If, any, if anything, someone's going to read the news, and I think we might be getting dumber. But that's a whole other topic, okay? <laughs> man looks on the outward appearance. We can't even help it. We're just wired that way. We just, we just look at the outward appearance. And we do that in ministry. We do that in the church. In fact, I, I can't tell you countless. I think probably all of us to some extent. We serve in a church. We lead in a church. I taught the leaders. How many of us, we judge ourselves. We judge others by appearances. This is why so many uh, Christian leaders deal with massive amounts of insecurity. We look around us all the time. And based on outward appearances, we think that person is more competent. That person has it more together. That person's better than me at this. That person's better than me at this. And we just constantly spend our lives feeling threatened by other people because we look at outward appearances. And God says, I don't choose people based on outward appearances. I didn't choose you because how you look, aren't you glad, by the way? Amen. Those of you here today who are handsome or beautiful, this point is not for you. <laughs> okay? This is, I mean, I'm just a tall, skinny, white guy. I just love that God looks at the inside, not the outside. Aren't you? Amen. He doesn't choose based on who's the, who's the most gifted. Who's the most talented? Who's the most confident looking? You know what we all do? We all feel insecure and inferior because everyone else looks like they have it put together and we feel threatened and all this sort of stuff. And then we try to project 
and make other people think we look successful when we're, all we are is just scared and feeling inferior on the inside. And God says, I don't look at the outside. I don't pick people based on how amazing they are. I gave you Saul. He was amazing. Came from a great family, tall and handsome, brave, wealth and powerful. Look at Eliab. He's got it all together. Lots of talent and skill. He should be the leader. He says, no, 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 no. I don't look at those things. I pick because I pick. So God says, no. Eliab, out. And I feel good that Samuel was fooled too, right? He's a mighty prophet of the Lord, and even he was judging by appearances. Verse 8, then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? Like at this point now, he's a bit confused. You ever been there? Like you know for sure God sent you on Project X. So I did it. And then you, okay, so I'm choosing from Jesse's sons. We just went through all seven, God. And you said, no, 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 seven times. Are, are all your sons here? He's just scratching his head. And then Jesse said, well, remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. Now, we have to stop here for a moment because we're, we're developing a base for this whole series on David and you've got to see something. There's, there's more going on here than meets the eye. Why would Jesse not bring all his sons? I mean, this is like Cinderella's evil stepmother, right? Like, <laughs> why would you hide the youngest? Why would you lock her up in a tower? Right? I mean, why? I mean, people, then we just glaze over this way too glibly as Christians. We just go over this and we say, well, it's because he was the youngest. Well, that is not an explanation. See, Middle Eastern culture, certainly, there was honor in being the oldest. No question, there was honor in being the oldest. But there was no shame in being the youngest. Absolutely not. A son is a son is a son. The more sons you had, the better. There was no shame in being the youngest son. Absolutely none. Honor in being the oldest, no shame in being the youngest. Uh, so the fact that David was the youngest, it's not like they would go, oh, here, these seven are my good sons, but he's my youngest. Absolutely not. Uh, something else is going on here and something that I believe is very important even to understanding the rest of David's life. You almost get the idea that the family is ashamed of David. That's what you almost get the idea that, like, why wouldn't they bring him out? I mean, you could have a hired hand take care of the sheep, but you don't bring out your youngest son. That doesn't make any sense. One of your sons is going to be king. You would bring them all out. Okay? You almost get the idea that Jesse and the boys are ashamed of him. And you see this throughout the rest of the story of David too. When we get to the story of, of David and Goliath, I won't go there right now, but we'll get there this summer as well. But in the story of David and Goliath, uh, David's older brother Eliab uh, actually just shows incredible like uh, just disdain for, he, he just, he has no respect for David. He really just cuts him down. And of course, you know, I mean, all these brothers sometimes have these little rivalries and stuff. I mean, uh, you know, my two boys, Charlie and, 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 and Boaz, I mean, they, they sock each other uh, today, yesterday, the day before, pretty much every day they're socking each other. But, uh, um, but what you see in the disturbed David and Goliath, like Eliab really despises David, right? And if you, read in, if you read in the Psalms, you get glimpses of this. For example, Psalm 69, verse 8, David writes, and, and, and some people, we don't know exactly when this Psalm was written, but some people think this Psalm was written when David was very young. Um, but Psalm 69 says this, verse 8, I've become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. So here's the youngest boy. I mean, think of how this feels, right? Those of you with kids, 
Uh, I think of our youngest, uh, Boaz. I mean, all he wants is just for his older siblings to include him. That, that just, just acknowledge him, right? Just let me play with you. Let me do, and of course, he's, yeah, well, he's the youngest, so I won't get into that, and he's in this service, so I've got to be careful, but, um, but he just wants to be included, right? That's what the youngest just wants to be included. Well, here we see, you know, possibly a very young David writing and saying, my brothers just won't have anything to do with me. I'm a stranger. I'm an alien to my brothers. Okay, and, and by alien, doesn't mean the like green person, you know, Martianized or something. It's, just, it's a term that just means they don't, they don't like me. They don't include me. And not just his brothers, but uh, consider what David says about his own mom and dad, Psalm 27, verse 10. Think about the pain in this line. For my father and my mother have forsaken me. Think about that. I mean, some of you have come from some pretty tough families where you've experienced rejection in your family. And that's a pretty tough wound when you grew up in a family where your own mother and father reject you. That's a tough wound, right? David says, my own father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. So this, he, he carried a lot of pain in his life. You can see some of the reason actually for some of his lows. David carried a lot of pain in his life, a lot of rejection in his life. So the question is, why? Why did his family uh, not like him? And by the way, again, aren't you glad that God picked someone like this? We human beings go to the ones that look like they have it all together. Like, who should be leading a nation like this? It should be, shouldn't be someone who's dealing with rejection. It shouldn't be someone who feels left out or nobody wants to include. It should be someone who's confident has it all together. It should be a Saul. It should be an Eliab. And God says, absolutely not. I'm going to take the guy that nobody thinks it should be. I'm going to take the guy they're all embarrassed about. I'm going to take the one who seems least qualified. But the question is, why? Why was David rejected by his family. It was, it, was, it was more than just a personality thing. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us lots of details, but we do get a clue possibly in Psalm 51, verse 5. Psalm 51, verse 5 says this, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, this is a, this is a famous passage that gets quoted lots by theologians and writers of systematic theologies uh, when they're trying to prove the, the doctrine or, uh, of, of original sin and depravity uh, and, uh, and, they, and then they'll quote this verse, and they, they'll say, see, we're all born in sin, okay? Now, first off, I just want to say this. That's a, it's a great doctrine. It's a great theology. Uh, we agree with it, totally. We're all born in sin. There's no question. All of us are born sinful. That's why we don't have to teach our kids to sin. Our kids just do it. Those of you who have kids, you know. Well, and we're all people. You know. You, you grew up. Nobody taught you to sin, okay? So we, we agree. Here at Southern, I agree the theology of, or, of original sin, and Paul comes, is going to come along a thousand years after this psalm, and he's going to write about it eloquently in the book of Romans and his other epistles, no question. I don't disagree with the theology. What I disagree with is often we build these systematic theologies, and then we go back in the Old Testament, we take verses out that had nothing to do with that and just fit them all neatly into our systems. When David writes here, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me, he wasn't writing about human beings in general, he was not writing about original sin. He was writing about himself. And he said, in sin did my mother conceive me, okay? Now, what I'm going to tell you next, we don't know. The Bible does not tell us. I can't say for sure, but I think it's worth saying because I think it lends a little bit of color and texture to the beginning of, of David's life and gives us a little context. There's, a, there's an old Jewish tradition that holds that David was, a result, was born as a result of adultery. That is, in the Jewish tradition, uh, David's mother had an affair so that David actually wasn't, you know, wasn't from Jesse, and uh, as a result, that's why uh, Jesse and his sons absolutely rejected him because they just considered him I illegitimate. Now, the fact of the matter is it wouldn't need, that's, that's a tradition. It's not scripture. We can't stand on it for sure. 
Uh, and it could as well just have been Jesse. It could have been Jesse had an affair. The Bible is very clear that, that Jesus came through Jesse's line. Um, but it could have been Jesse that had the affair. And, uh, and as a result, he was embarrassed. He should never have done it. So David was always this kind of embarrassment. He was different from his brothers. And that's why, you know, he wouldn't bring him out to be king. It's like he's like kind of the black spot on the family record. Okay? Now, in our culture, we don't see that as a huge uh, embarrassment. It's like, okay, so what? Something happened. You were born out of wedlock. You were born illegitimately. In our culture, it's really not a big deal. In that culture, it was a really big deal. It was really, really shameful. And so if that's true, it explains a lot of things. It explains Psalm 51, verse 5. It explains why his family would be ashamed of him. It would also give us an, an amazing, another amazing parallel between David and the son of David, Jesus. Because now Jesus wasn't actually born out of an illegitimate relationship, but because of the virgin birth, he knew the stigma of having everybody think that you were born illegitimately in a, in a culture that thought that was very shameful. Just, just, like, just like his father David, right? So uh, there's a lot of that shame, there's a lot of that embarrassment, but here's again, here's the thing, and I want to finish with this and we'll go to one last passage. Here's the thing I love about God, he doesn't get embarrassed. He doesn't get embarrassed. I can't, I, I can only imagine how many people have been in this service or in this service right now this morning or were here last night in one of the Saturday services. You've got things that have happened in your life and you're just ashamed of it. Things that have happened in your marriage or your marriage broke up or things that happened with your kid and you're afraid to come to church and you can't hold your head high because you're embarrassed about some of the things that have happened. And you carry that label now, whatever it is, divorced or this, or that, and you feel like you carry a label, and you feel like everybody judges you, and you feel ashamed, and you feel like you have a stigma. You know what I love about God? He's not embarrassed. He's not embarrassed. So David's carrying a stigma. Well, for us, that stigma's not that big in our culture anymore, but in that culture, that was a big, big stigma, and God goes right beside David and says, not ashamed. Not ashamed. And he'll pick the one everybody thinks least likely, most embarrassing, and so in 1 Samuel 16, verse 11, and Samuel said to Jesse, send and get for him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. It's like a rebuke. He just rebukes Jesse. How dare you bring seven and not bring the eighth? Twelve, and he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, that means red hair, and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Now I want to ask you two questions. First of all, why did David become king? Was it because he deserved it? Was it because he was so talented? Was it because he had so much ability? Absolutely not. We see that's the whole contrast in this story. It had nothing to do with his ability. He got chosen because he got chosen. Amen. Just God picked him. That's why he became king. Not because he deserved it. If it was based on deserving and talent and ability, it could have been easily someone else. It could have been Saul. It could have been alive. It could have been a lot of people. It wasn't based on talent, ability, or any of that sort of stuff. Now let me ask you a second question. Why did David end up being a man after God's own heart? How come did David end up doing some of those great things? We put these people on a pedestal. We think, David was a man after God's own heart. That could never be me. He came from a shameful situation, and nobody thought he could amount to anything. So how does he end up killing Goliath? How does he end up killing the lion and the bear and some of the other things we're going to look at in this series? How does he end up doing some of these great things? He also does some low things coming out of his woundedness and rejection. But how does he do some of these great things? I'll tell you, it's explained to us right there because the Spirit of the Lord rushed on him. That's why. You and I don't accomplish things for God because we're so good. That's why we're always so intimidated. Someone else should be doing this. I can't do this. Someone else is better than me at this. We feel intimidated. We feel threatened. All these sorts of things. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. You're right, you can't. And you're right, uh, there are probably a lot of other people that are better than you at a lot of things, and me. 
But you didn't get picked because of how good you were. You got picked because you got picked because God looked at you and said, I want that one. And the reason you accomplished anything for him is because you have the Spirit of God. Amen? Amen? So we don't have to feel threatened. We don't have to feel insecure. Amen. So I want to finish with this. It's a weekly challenge, but we're going to spend a little bit of time. We're just going to take a moment. We're going to listen right here in his service. But I want us to do a little listening prayer, and I want us just to let the Lord, just let your mind go wherever he wants to take it. Is there an area of your life where you are feeling deep insecurity, <laughs> inadequacy? We're just going to take a moment and listen. If that's the one, and don't, don't, don't try to do all three of these. Just pick one, whichever one comes to you. You can just write it down. You can go, and then you can go and journal about it and talk to God about it later in the week. Uh, do you regularly deal with feelings of rejection? You can ask God to speak of that. Or maybe number three, have you been rushing God's timing on something? Maybe there's something that you've, you've been rushing, you've been feeling impatient, you've been feeling like he's not going to answer, he's not going to do it. And we're just going to give God a moment right here at the end of the service to, to speak. It's, you know, he loves you so much. He loves you so much. And many of us have a hard time trusting him. We're rushing him. Hurry up. Hurry up. Are you actually going to do this? We just need to trust him. And we're feeling insecure. It can't be me. can't be me. can't be me. can't be me. He just wants to say, it's you. I'm using you. I love what David says there in that verse. My father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. He loves you. So I want you to bow your heads with me. I want you to close your eyes. I want us to just take a moment. Maybe the Lord just wants to speak to you right here in this service on one of these things. Maybe it's an area of insecurity you have. Maybe it's rejection. Maybe he wants to bring to mind something you've been rushing him on. You're not trusting him in. I want, we just want to give you a moment. Lord Jesus, we want to give you a moment. Every, every head bow, every eye closed. Lord Jesus, we just want to give you a moment to speak into our lives. Speak in those areas of insecurity, those areas of rejection, Lord Jesus. If there's an area where we haven't been trusting you, Lord, we want to give you a moment to speak into our lives. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us. Just write down whatever he shows you. Lord Jesus, we just thank you. Obviously, we're not going to work through every issue we have right in this moment, but Lord, we pray that we've just started a conversation here with you this morning that we want to carry on this week. Lord, I pray that you'd be gracious to us, you'd be good to us, that you'd reveal the knots in our hearts, that you would fill us with your love, Lord, that we can rise up like David. He was, he was nobody extra special. You just picked him. And you love us too, and Lord Jesus, we want to be your servants, and we want to be a people after your own heart. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.